focus on was the issue of fear. Because there's this incredible message of you will never again fear any harm. And then also, do not fear. And so the question probably could have been instead, um, what are you afraid of? Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's fear of missing out. FOMO is a thing we talk about now. Maybe it's fear of growing old, or maybe it's fear of being alone. Maybe it's fear of cancer. Some of us have fears of our children thriving in the way that we have imagined for them. Or we fear the money running out, or we fear our safety, or we fear that um, the abuse will happen again. Some people might be fearing that someone will leave them. Some people might fear that someone will return. Some people are fearing that others have an opinion about you or that you'll fail. And others, I've heard fears that some people have of someone close to you not knowing Jesus, maybe never knowing Jesus, but you love them so much and you hope that for them. These are all really natural fears. Fear is a part of our life. We live and our day, every day contains fears and, and along with the kind of the cousin of fear, which is worry, right? And all that's so natural, yet some of our fears probably look rather pedestrian and small compared to the higher grade fears of the audience that heard Zephaniah's message. They were a people that probably lived under fear. Ancient Israel, somewhere in between that time of the great kings of David and Solomon and when Jesus returned, in the midst of getting thrown about and abused as a nation, politically, physically, emotionally, geographically abused, experiencing loss after loss after loss, suffering after suffering after suffering. This is the people that heard this message people whose children uh, grew up in breathing the air of fear. And how does that just kind of build a sort of psyche as, a, as an outlook on life to be surrounded by fears and experiences of loss? And yet to this people, to this people comes this message with these simple words. Don't they sound ridiculously simple? Do not fear, Zion. Don't be afraid. Never again will you fear any harm. Those words must have felt to ancient Israel like, like just um, irrational impossibility. Does it ever feel that way for you sometimes? That our fears and worries, you know, you know, don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't worry about that. You know that. But doesn't it seem so almost impossible, near impossible to find a way through it, to get unlocked, to, to come out of the fears controlling things? Just make no progress in dampening your fears. I think if we're perceptive too, we might even notice that we're actually spending a lot of time 
constructing and building the edifice of our life on top of the foundation of our fears. We're building plans and habits and routines and goals out of the energy of our fears. You work hard because you're afraid of something. You stay emotionally closed off because of the fear of something. And you could go on and on and on and say, I do this because really it trace it back to some kind of fear. And more broadly, the effect of fear on a population or a tribe or a nation, we know where that can go. In December, there's always news, there's always reminders of Pearl Harbor. And this month, my um, mom reflected through a text message on the radio that my grandfather sat in front of to hear the news of Pearl Harbor when he was like 14 or 15 years old. And he would then a few years later enlist and be in the Navy in um, the Pacific. Yeah, Grampy. And, he's, and he survived all of that. In fact, both of my children's great-grandfathers were part of that fleet in the Pacific. And what my mom said was that, just the, that she was told stories of how fear gripped those who sat before the radio and heard this message of the bombing at Pearl Harbor, that the Japanese were after us. They were going to attack California. And um, in this past summer, you know, we can, we can visit these places. I visited uh, an internment camp that told that story from another angle of what happened as those fears escalated. And eventually, we got to the time where in... Um, 1990, almost 50 years later, George H.W. Bush sent letters to Japanese Americans who had been, you know, the 110,000 of them, if you see the, the newspaper article this morning, has a picture of the letter sent to these families apologizing for imprisoning all these people and taking everything away. Why? Because they did something because of fear, because of just sort of the snowball effect of a nation's fears. Fears are powerful and the plans built on fear are so compelling in the moment and yet so powerfully disastrous. And today, in this passage, God is, it seems to be dangling before us the artwork to capture our imagination of a delightful picture of what's possible when fear is expelled at its root and that you might just construct a different kind of life in the place of the fear-driven life. How does that work? Well, it's interesting how if you read how you can, with a fear, kind of a fear outlook, if you read verse 15, you come away with one kind of picture that ancient Israel most likely came across with, and they were definitely had this picture in Jesus' day. Verse 15 says this, the Lord has taken away your punishment and he has turned back your enemy. Read that verse from a posture of fear of the other and you can only really have a view of God loves us, God's gathering us, God's going to forgive us, but he'll, as the second part of the verse seems to imply, he'll drown the enemy like he did the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. rooted in fear, and that when Christ comes, when this, 
Messiah of this ancient people finally comes. On the cross, you get an incredibly, when Jesus went to the cross, you get a very different picture of how you might understand that same verse. The Lord has taken away your punishment and has turned back your enemy. Suddenly on the cross, the enemy looks different. When you have Jesus, the mob, the crowd, even the powerful people behind the mob in the crowd, he stands there being overwhelmed by the suffering and calls out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now that verse looks different. Now this salvation looks different. Jesus had zero fear. Take another verse, probably the most likely for ancient Israel to misinterpret. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior saves. God's going to come as a mighty warrior. And so, of course, what that means, built on, a, on the foundation of fear, it means that we're, God's going to fight the sinners. God's going to fight the terrorists. God's going to fight the atheists. God's going to fight the Romans. And he's going to bring on them the burning fires of judgment. But when Christ comes, think about that verse in terms of Jesus Christ heading to the cross. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. How does the mighty warrior save? His battle ends up being different than we expect. His battle's against death itself. He dies and then rises from the dead. His weapon seems to be suffering. His battle cry is not, as we look to our Savior and as his disciples look to their Savior, and as Peter, we know, expected, he had the sword ready, expected the battle cry to be, take up your swords, and the battle cry was, take up your... What? cross. I know, I know several of you know the Sunday school answer to that one. Not take up your sword, but take up your cross. That's the battle cry. That's what happens when fear is expelled. Take up your cross. The words of Jesus are like a blueprint for how to wait. How to wait for his return. And the renowned 20th century Catholic theologian Amazing, deep-thinking scholar Karl Rahner says, the cross, this is how simple he puts it, the cross that you carry inevitably becomes a brilliant banner of triumph. Karl Rahner understood. Verse 17, the mighty warrior who saves the cross that you carry inevitably becomes a brilliant banner of triumph. So, what's your fear today? Where is fear driving your plans? And the alternative plans, what might those be that look more like taking up a cross? When the coming of Jesus was first proclaimed, every time it started with a few words. The angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid. The angel said to Mary, do not be afraid. 
The angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. The angel said to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, do not be afraid. I think we're supposed to not be afraid. And Advent faith, you might think if you have faith, then you don't do anything. But Advent faith, Advent faith is a faith with fear expelled and driven out. And so that's faith with action. That's not passive faith, that's active faith. In our church, in our city, and our world needs people whose fears have been properly expelled. You're needed. Your Advent faith, your fear-free faith is needed. People are needed who aren't going to waste their days away with trinkets and flimsy plans. But because those things, and I feel this myself, those kinds of things, the things that I could see in myself that are trinkets or flimsy plans, those things are like clogging up the space where I might otherwise take up my cross instead. Let's pray. Our God of grace, Jesus, come quickly. Our world is broken. There is much to make us afraid. And fear is a natural part of our biology. And yet you bring something in. You created our biology and you bring your salvation into every part of our bodies and our psyche, and our fear. And you call us out of fear. So as we sit here being wrapped up in our losses and building futures on our fears, we can also feel it in our bones that there is another way possible because you've put that belief deep inside of us. Tarnished in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first said, we hid because we were afraid. And yet somewhere deep inside, we know that with you, there's another way. Would you open us up to that way? In Jesus' name, amen.